0: wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz.
1: This is Everyone Talks to Liz Clayman. On this week's episode, the best of Everyone Talks to Liz.
0: I'm thrilled to introduce to you the one, the only, Donna Brazil. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Oh, Tell me wow. about your folks and their profession.
2: You said well, they worked every single day, you're talking seven days day. a week. Yes, they did, because mm-hmm. they had nine kids, and my parents had a motto, and that was education, education, education. We, in fact, we thought our middle name was education. <laughs> they wanted us to complete school. My parents both dropped out of college, fell in love, got married. The rest is history, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, they wanted us to fulfill our dreams. And they worked hard so that they could put us through school, always made sure we had good clothes and shoes and all of the other things that most kids had. We just didn't have a lot of money. Um, they, uh, We didn't have a car, so we took public transportation everywhere. That didn't bother us because, of course, that gave us a little adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, But my mom was a a domestic. She was a maid. She Mm -hmm. worked downtown uh, New Orleans. We moved out to Kenna after nine kids, I guess, came into the family. Didn't have enough room Mm -hmm. in the city, so we we lived with my grandparents. My dad was a janitor after completing his military service. But together, they they made enough money to take care of all of us. And to, you know, the funny thing is that during those days, we never would have called ourselves poor. Yeah, we didn't have cars. We didn't, you know, we didn't have the finest of things, but we had good things and and we shared. I mean, for example, when I got home from school, I had to take off my quote unquote school clothes or my good clothes so that I can, you know, make sure that they didn't get worn out. And we had play clothes uh, when my mother on Mondays, we would cook red beans so that we had enough not just for the nine kids but for other kids in the neighborhood who might not have mm. you know a good meal and so my parents were the kind of people who wanted to save money for us Every summer of my childhood. Now I make fun of it now because it's fun to make fun of your parents, right? Uh, but every summer they save up enough money for us to go on a Greyhound bus to Houston to watch the Astros and go to Astro World. I'll never forget, Liz. When I turned fifteen, Aww. I went to my mom and I said, "Please, please, can I go see Michael Jackson?" I am, you know, <laughs> forget the Astros. Astros to these days, But come on, I'm fifteen now. I I'm mean, I'm, I'm I'm getting up in age, and my mother told me I could, but. You know, think about the the fact that you had parents who not only sacrificed uh, for my siblings and myself, but they made sure that we had enough for other people in the neighborhood. That that's the kind of parents I was raised by. I was oh raised my. by some good people. I well, loved them.
0: And during a during a difficult time in the '60s, certainly. And you you talk about oh, you know, we were taking public transportation and we got to college, and our parents wanted education, but th- what we're not talking about here, and we should, was that it was superimposed over a traumatic time, especially during the African-American experience, because, I mean, you had the Civil Rights Act, which passed, and yet, even years after that, in Mississippi and so the Southern states, uh, there were lynchings, there were horrific crimes against Blacks, and yet you and eight siblings are living through this
2: living through it with parents that did not want us to focus on the negative okay i mean they were adamant um my mother did not want us to read about it she wanted to talk to us i'll give you a good example the night dr kane was murdered and my grandmother made us pray and of course i had a big mouth haha <laughs> and i raised my little hand and say grandma who killed him? Why did they kill him? He was a man of peace. He was a man of love. I was eight years old, um, and my grandmother said... We had to pray. She said, Donna, shut up. We have to pray. So we prayed for Dr. King. We prayed for Dr. King's family. Of course, you know, we're still on our knees. We're Catholic, so we're going to keep praying. And she said, let's pray for whoever did this. We have to pray for them, too. And I objected. I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. I said, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. And my grandmother, again, said, shut up, Donna. And <laughs> by the way, I used to think that was my other name. And uh, and, and and my grandmother said, no. We must pray for everyone because our God is a God of love. So I grew up with John F. Kennedy, Jesus, and Martin Luther King pictures in In our living room. I mean, we had no other symbolic pictures. We had crucifixes everywhere. I'm Catholic. But our parents taught us to love, and it was very difficult being a kid who was in my judgment, I, I did. I, I read a lot. I mean, I, I disobeyed my mother. No question about it. I read everything I could find. I mean, I was in the library. They used to say, where's Donna? My sister, my older sisters, would say, y'all know she's in the library or she's out there playing ball with the boys. <laughs> of course, those were my two favorite hobbies to read and go play ball with the boys because, of course, boys were exciting. Mm-hmm. And my sister went, my sisters were into paper dolls and uh, Barbie dolls and anything that they could find. I found no interest. whatsoever whatsoever in that I found a lot of interest. I was an entrepreneur because I wanted to help my parents. I cut out coupons. I ran errands for my neighbors so that they can give me a quarter here, a dime there, because, as you know, back in the day, you had penny candy. You didn't have to go to an ATM (laughs) and get $20. (laughs) You had penny candy. Thank God I didn't have an ATM back then. But I I was well aware of racism. Mm -hmm. I was aware of the impact but i was not allowed to talk about it so i wrote a lot about it i wrote poetry i wrote speeches i wrote so that i can express myself mm-hmm. and how much i did not like it
0: but i get the sense that you you know people often say during this whole drama of of climbing the corporate ladder or climbing in the television news world for me people would say oh what was it like being a woman in the business? And I'd say say the exact same thing every time. I didn't see myself as a woman. I just saw myself as a journalist. And I never thought I'm a man or a woman. I'd pitch myself for every story possible. And I wouldn't sit there and think, well, this isn't appropriate for a woman to go into what was Hurricane Andrew, which hit New Iberia, Louisiana. I'm sure you know it well. I was in Cleveland working for ABC at the time. And And I went in there, marched in there, and I was the only female who was really lobbying for it. And I said, send me. And and the news director said, well, I just don't want your parents to get upset. And I said, well, why would they? And I said, well, you know, you're female. I said, you can stop right there. I'm not female. I'm a journalist. So you were were looking at yourself as, hey, just I'm Donna. I'm forging ahead and – you you did i think that that's part and parcel for why you were able to attain the heights that you have in the political world which leads me to the political world you know as a child yes you had this innate ability it seems donna i don't know i mean that that you could manage a campaign for a politician whether it was a small town council member or what have you but you know, talk about how you vaulted into the world of national politics
2: which Jimmy you know, Carter as uh, I understand for, uh, it really was I, I was excited about the news i used to watch the evening news on you know we had three major channels back then three channels 4 6 and 8 mm-hmm. and I, I loved all of them i loved reading the newspaper the time pick a and I just I loved everything from the from the news section to the sports section and I could absorb everything that I read. I just loved it. I loved life itself because I was a little girl and I had the curiosity of I think a grown up. I just wanted to know a little bit about everything. And so that year after Dr. Kane's assassination, I I went to my mom and I told her that Miss Minor and Miss Phyllis C on Taylor Street uh, we're starting a campaign to get a playground, a neighborhood. And of course, my mom looked at me like, excuse me, a playground. I'm like, yes, a playground. We don't have a playground. The white kids have a playground. We don't have a playground. And it was clear to me what was happening after 1968 was that they were trying to, you know, bring equality of the races uh, throughout the South. And okay. so for the first time, there was consideration of building playgrounds as well as more schools on the, quote-unquote, the other side of the train tracks, otherwise known as the black community. And so I'd say, hell yeah, I want a playground. Well, I didn't say hell yeah, because my mother would have <laughs> popped that out of my mouth. But I say, yes, I want a playground. And so you know what Miss Minor gave me as my assignment? Because they knew I had a big mouth. They say, we need you to go down Fillmore Street, Jackson Street, Clay Street and Webster Street, and knock on the doors. You know everybody down there and just see if they're registered to vote. Well, of course I did that in two days, and it wow. was hot down there. And I came back and I said, "Here it is: five twenty-nine Fillmore Street, registered. Five thirty-one, not registered. Five thirty-four. I wrote it all down. I had the, you know, Catholic girls. You know, we knew how to write, <laughs> and I had, a, and I spelled it right on white paper with my pencil. And they looked at it and they say, "Wow! Now we need you to go back." And they gave me enough money to get a snowball, and back then I did a lot for a snowball because it was hot. Mm. And I went back and I and they and they said, "Would you register if we found a candidate to build a playground?" Well, then I went back and told them. Well, they also want the roads painted. I uh, mean, paid. Uh. And they wanted they wanted a school. I mean, they gave me all this stuff, but I wrote it all down. And that year. Uh, We went door-to-door. We registered well over 300 uh, voters. And you know what? Our council person was elected.
0: Yes. And
2: we got the playground. Pellegrin uh, Playground is still in Kenna, Louisiana. (sighs) I I mean, in... Although Katrina and Camille and Betsy and Bob and Veteran I can name so many storms. You know, I know all the storms personally. (laughs) You've endured them. Uh, Look, I'm a survivor. That's why every time they see a hurricane in in the Atlantic, I freak out because I'm like, oh, 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 where is it going? But we got the playground. We got the roads. The roads were paved. Uh, we got another school in the community. And, of course, the next stop in my political journey was volunteering for uh, a statewide race. I'll never forget attorney. Uh, 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 A.G. uh, Billy Gus down in Louisiana, and the following year, that was 75, the following year because I was active, Mm -hmm. I was in high school, of course, Grace King at all-girls school, Mm -hmm. and uh, with Martha Strong because after busing, my friends were black and white and everything in between, and we went out because her parents were very deeply involved in Democratic Party politics. Uh, Louisiana used to be like a one-party state back in those days. Now it's a one-party state Republican and with half the Democrats around. Mark Randolph, he's the
0: co-founder and founding CEO of Netflix. Joining me in Everyone Talks to Liz form. Great to have you.
1: Well, it's great to be here, Liz. Thanks.
0: My head kind of exploded when I learned that the idea hatched in Santa Cruz, land of surfing, and the first pizza parlor, by the way, of the world with whole wheat pizza crust only. How do I know that? I went to Santa Cruz for a year. Tell me about Santa Cruz and what was happening in that time.
1: Well, there certainly is a vibe about Santa Cruz, which is what, to me anyway, makes it an endearing place. It is laid back. It is a surf town. It's kind of this last hippie hippie refuge. um, It's where old Volkswagen buses go to die. Chartreuse. Yes. Volkswagen buses. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Great collection. But it was also, you know, it was right over the mountains from Silicon Valley. So it was in some ways connected to that economy. Um, I'd say most of the people who work in Santa Cruz don't work in Santa Cruz. They work over the mountains mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. And I was no i was no different. You, you were know. working at a software company, correct? Yeah, I was working at a small software company that myself and two friends had started. We were small. There was only about a dozen of us at the time. Um, and we were doing what software companies do. It was just building a product. We hadn't even launched um, customers yet. What was the product you were building? Well, it was pretty geeky. It was a product for quality assurance. So okay, was, I just it, fell asleep. It was, yes, of course. And my, <laughs> my, me, my mom fell asleep too when I tried to tell her this. <laughs> there was something very satisfying ultimately about Netflix is they actually understood what that what it company was. did. Right, after the previous one. But it was, it was kind of uh, fun. I was doing it with two friends, but our, our idyllic lifestyle was disturbed when all of a sudden we sold the company. And it was a good, a good thing because, you know, the investors make money and our stock options are now worth something. Um, And we sold it to a bigger company that happened to have been founded and was being run by a guy named Reed Hastings. uh, Co-founder of Netflix. Who figures fairly uh, strongly in the story after that. And Reed uh, coincidentally also lived in Santa Cruz. So you guys start carpooling together. Exactly. And so Reed and I would drive to work together every morning. And we did this for, you know, six months working at his big software company. And then lightning struck again. And his big software company was now being acquired by an even bigger software company. Also great economic outcome.
0: That often means that founders are out of a
1: job. Uh, Yes, being called made redundant is the euphemism we use. Painful. Um, but it means basically you're out. And Reed, I was out and Reed was going to be out. But, you know, at least in Silicon Valley, when that happens, you don't despair. Because um, basically, you can basically go out onto uh, the highway there with a sign that says, uh, CEO needs work. <laughs> and someone will pull over and you hop in and you get another job. Uh, but, you know, that company that I had sold to Reed's company was my fifth startup, so I was I had some track record here, and I decided, okay, great. Now that I'm out of this job, I'm going to start the next one. Now, Reed um, was not in the mood to start another company. He, in fact, decided this was the time that really changed the world. That he was going to go and be an educational philanthropist. Okay. He was going to go to graduate school, but. You know, once you're an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. Can't get it out of the system. You can't. And he wanted to keep a hand in. So Reed and I came up with the perfect solution that we'd come up with an idea that he would be the angel investor, that I would hire the people, run the company, find the lease, and we'd both get what we want. But we needed that idea. So take us back to
0: the very drive. We have to know what kind of car it was.
1: (laughs) So Reed had a gold Avalon. Ooh, and, that's which is, hot. Yeah, you can almost picture car seats in the back of a car like that. <laughs> this,
0: and you're driving This was not along. a sexy
1: Porsche that uh, Reed was driving. Of, it was an Avalon. Of course not. But
0: talk about where at least the shell around the Netflix chick began to crack and hatch.
1: Talk about <laughs> that drive. You know, at the time, this is not like Reed and I were movie buffs or debating who were the better French directors. We 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 had pedestrian tastes. We watched the same crap that everyone watches. (laughs) And so we was not saying, let's start a movie company. My criteria was much simpler. I wanted it to involve selling something on the internet. And that was pretty much it. And we began exploring what could you sell on the internet? What would be interesting things? But I had another criteria I wanted to try and get in, which was personalization. Because the first 20 years of my career, I was a direct marketing guy, junk mail, you know, and catalogs. And... Direct to consumer. Exactly. And in a personalized manner, you know, the envelope would come addressed to you and it would start off, hey, Liz, have I got an offer for you? Uh, we remember those well it, when they first started. It was pretty primitive. It goes, we bet you and your neighbors at 17, Crescent, whatever it is. <laughs> you know how that was. But that was, that, for some reason, I loved that stuff. Anyway, we began brainstorming ideas that might fit this mold, and they were ridiculous. I mean, one of the favorites was, um, for me anyway, was personalized shampoo, that we'd have someone mail in a lock of their hair. <laughs> our, our scientists, oh Stop, which means please. me in the back, would formulate the custom shampoo based <laughs> on your hair type And then you'd be delivered a subscription once a month, something like that. What
0: would be in this truffle oil? Who
1: knows? Yes, exactly. You you got the exact exact idea. That could
0: have been your marketer.
1: Bill Reed didn't like that one. So next. And the other ones were equally ridiculous. It was personalized baseball bats and custom dog food. That was another one that I loved. That
0: might work today.
1: I think most of these ideas now happen today, which is the irony. But this was back in 1997. So um, the market was not quite ready for uh, custom dog food. And so one of the ideas was video and not selling video because back then Jeff Bezos had this company which was selling books only. It was a bookstore. But we knew that his aspirations were not just to be a bookstore. It was going to be the anything store and the everything store. So we knew video would be in his sights pretty soon. But we thought, what about video rental? Um, Because it was a big category.
0: But didn't... Blockbuster exist
1: already. Yeah, more than existed, of course. Uh, they were a blockbuster. Those who were around in 1997 knew that was the game. Yes, I mean there was 9,000 Blockbuster stores. There was one you could throw a rock from almost anywhere in the country and hit a Blockbuster store. So that was the competition. But we believed that that experience left a lot of room to be improved upon. Um, blockbuster actually had it the the core one of the core tenets of their business model was something they called managed dissatisfaction. And you love to go up against someone whose principle is based on managed dissatisfaction. Or
0: accepting dissatisfaction.
1: Yeah, they recognize this is not a very good experience. We're just going to do the best we can. And we go, that's an opportunity for us. And so we began doing the research and doing video rental by mail, but it got rejected by me. Mm -hmm. I went and said, I can't do this. These things are too... Back then... Again, if you remember Blockbuster, it was VHS. all VHS. Sure. Those big and heavy, fragile, expensive things. And I go, I can't mail those. They're too expensive. It's like $15 round trip. No one's going to pay that for a rental. And so that idea got tossed out the window along with the baseball bats and the shampoo.
0: Remind me, DVDs did not exist at that point, They, at least in America. Weren't they in development, though?
1: In uh, Maybe in Japan, me not being a video geek, I hadn't. This, I wouldn't have known a DVD if you had, you know, hit me in the head with it. So I had no idea. But you've, you're on to something, which is that was the breakthrough. That was if there was an inciting event, that was it. Was that one morning Reed mentioned that he'd seen there was this new technology being test marketed in the United States called the DVD, and it wasn't. What was fortunate is that if we had just heard about the DVD, I don't think we would have jumped to video rental by mail. But it turned out that because we had spent time a few months ago really walking through this whole process about video rental by mail and realized, well, the flaw here is VHS is too heavy and too expensive. And then all of a sudden DVD came along. I mean, the analogy I've used sometimes is that it was like cleaning up and finding under your couch the jigsaw puzzle piece. That you've looked for forever. And all of a sudden you realize, right, this is the one that completes that puzzle.
0: We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment.
3: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well. From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience. Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services.
0: She grew up in Amish country in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in the 1960s. And yes, yes, her parents drove a horse and buggy. Please welcome Ann Weiler, the founder of Auntie Ann's Pretzels. You wanted to do something about which you knew something, and that was certainly cooking and baking. That's right. <laughs> and you bought a little farm stand, correct? That, that was making mm-hmm. pretzels and pizza. That's right. But where'd you get the money for that? Because you guys didn't have a lot of money.
4: No, we had no money. Uh we had we had twenty five dollars at that at that moment, $25 cash, no savings, no credit cards, nothing. And uh, we were offered the store and we needed $6,000. And we, we, I mean, when we heard about the store, uh, our initial thought was, wow, we could never afford that. Mm-hmm. But as time, as we talked to the owners and they gave us the price and my husband said to me, hon, I think my dad will give us the money for that. So we went to his dad, who was also an Amish guy, but he also had he was a wealthy Amish man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he he loaned us the money and we set up shop for a $6,000 with a $6,000 loan, faith in God. Uh, a lot of, uh, we're just thrilled with the opportunity. Uh, it was amazing that we actually had this opportunity to do uh, our own, have our own business. It okay. was a miracle.
0: Doors open in 1988. What happens? What was the foot traffic like? How nervous were you? What were you selling?
4: Tell me, tell me. (laughs) I was so nervous and I didn't know anything about business. We never owned a market or never owned a business before. Uh, But there was one thing that was instilled into me and that was to work hard and to love people. And to bake a very to, to bake a good product, and I, I learned that at home. If I make a good pie or bake some good cookies or cake or whatever, the family always raved about it, and I knew when I had a good product. And so, uh, we went to this uh, farmers market and we began to work on a on this soft pretzel that was already there, and uh, it, it really wasn't the best uh, recipe. <laughs> and one day I was going to take it down. Uh, we had ice cream, pizza, and pretzels. And uh, I was very unhappy with the pretzels. And my husband said, before you take it off the menu, let me go to the store and let me add some ingredients that I think might make the recipe better. And I'm like, well, whatever, just do whatever you can. But I, I'm, I'm done with pretzels, we'll do pizza and ice cream. <laughs> and uh, so he went to the store and I'm, I'm pouting because the product was terrible. And he came back and we added some ingredients to the existing recipe that we had and it was miraculous. I will always tell people, Auntie Anne's, the product itself was a it was a modern day business miracle, and Auntie Anne's was created uh, just to to bless people. Uh, there was a greater plan that that was beyond our control. It seemed like at the time. Well, it it actually
0: weaves into the origins of the pretzel. Absolutely, you know, first pretzel created by an Italian monk in the seventh century, mm-hmm. and and this is what I learned, and you tell me. He twisted scraps of dough to make them look like arms folded
4: in prayer. That's correct. And, and the, the holes in the pretzel represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the salt that it's salted with means that we are the salt of the earth. And back in the day, it was called a pretiola, a Latin word meaning a little reward. So Auntie Anne is all about... Pratiola, meaning a little reward for every customer that comes mm-hmm. to the counter, they need a little reward. So we love that. Well, mm-hmm. Anne, uh,
0: that's great. But here's where I am blown away. To go from that in 1988 mm-hmm. to where you are today, close to 2,000 outlets in 28 countries, mm-hmm. that's, that's just this massive quantum leap but mm-hmm. to me as i read your story an even bigger leap was when you opened your second store forget a 2000 your mm-hmm. second store you opened that just a few months after your first were you that successful with a little one you bought for 6 grand
4: yes we were we were we were making pretzels uh, we we could not keep up with the demand we we added more ovens i added more employees um, we did as high as in one day we would do. We call it back in the day it was called ninety dozes, ninety batches, and there was about forty five pretzels per batch. So we did uh, ninety times close to four thousand pretzels in one day. And the, the so so in this little market stand, word begin to sp- it just began to spread like wildfire. Auntie Ann's pretzels, uh, y- you got it. You got to have one, you know, and you got to taste it. And so. In our community, the word spread, and um, somebody came to us and said, we, there's a store available in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So we went to look at the store, and we decided, sure, we can do two locations. I'll be at one, and my sister uh, can be at the other one, and that way we can manage two stores. And that was, in my mind, that was as far as we were going to go. Two stores. That's right. <laughs> did you
0: did you have a business plan, a marketing strategy? No. no
4: did we you even nothing. know what those words meant? No, I did not. I do now, but I did not at the <laughs> time. Did you try, I learned, f- did you try I I for a bank loan? Uh, we did try for a bank loan. At that time, though, we had made enough of money in six months to where we could actually pay for our second location. I understand uh, back in the day, it was maybe another five or $6,000 mm-hmm. for our second location. And I remember uh, actually crying about this on our way back after we had signed a market a deal with the market master, I started crying. And I told my husband, Hun, all of the money we have in savings now we're gonna put into our second location. What if this doesn't work? <laughs> and uh it was the first time in our lives that we'd ever had a savings account. And my husband said, Hun, you know Everybody's going to love your pretzels. Don't worry about it. We don't need to sell that many to make up the rent there. Uh, we'll, we're going to do just fine. But I was like, really, it was, um, Anxiety. I was stressed out. Anxiety. I was very, I was thinking maybe we did the wrong thing. But um, when we opened up the store there, immediately, immediately, we began to sell pretzels. And we couldn't make them fast enough. Again, it was unbelievable. So we knew that Auntie Anne's was on the on the way to somewhere, but we had no idea where.
0: <laughs> hey, you were on the way to maybe Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, who knows, That right? would be about it. Um, um, so uh, uh, I don't want to go through each and every step up until 2000, okay. but at what point don't you need a business loan from a bank to, to really scale up? I, I'm interested to know what bankers thought of somebody who never went to high school, didn't go to college. And was operating off cash and no credit cards. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, and then also part of our uh, our mission was Auntie Anne's was created to give. So back in the day, I didn't understand that bankers really don't want to deal with someone that <laughs> wants to give their money away. So I get it. I get it now, but back then I, I thought. I don't know. We were having a blast because we were able to give and uh, pay our employees well. And, and fast forward from 1988 to the year 1990, 91, my youngest brother came on board and he became the the manager and he was able to departmentalize. We put uh, training uh, systems in place. We went to a, a franchise a consulting company called Corp out of Chicago, Illinois. So we really, in two years, we just gathered so much information about franchising that, let me tell you, Liz, I was scared to death like, wow, I cannot believe that we're franchising. I began to understand that world. And it was very, very scary for me. But I was learning. I'm reading books on leadership, on franchising, on management, and all the things that I needed to learn. And uh, going to conferences and um, training uh, myself in leadership. There's all kinds of things. I'm I'm, I'm packing it in. And um at one point, I was at the very end of just like, I can't do this anymore. But somehow we found, we always found the right people uh, to take us to the next place. So Auntie Anne's is really not about me. Auntie Anne's is about the great people that came to us that understood our vision, our mission, and our purpose. And they helped us to get where eventually we realized where we wanted to go. Sure. And uh, at one point in 1990. Three, I believe it was we wanted to go, uh, we wanted to do regional offices and set up an office and a store in five different regions. We went to the bank for a million and a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, we had every bill was paid. We were putting money into our account. Uh, there was really no reason for them to say no. But we'd gone to three different banks and every one of them said no. Oh. And uh, I'm like, wow, why? Why would they say no? I mean, everything is, you know, our P&Ls look great. And so my uh P&L, brother, profit and loss. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes. And um, so we found out that the banks uh, didn't loan us the money because they did not like our contribution column because we that was, that, that was one of our columns, contribution. Right. Meaning because donations
0: and charity. Yes, yes. They didn't uh, like because, that. That's just amazing to me.
4: Well, yeah, but uh, you know, I understand that now, but that was the reason they didn't give us the loan. And uh, but but we got the loan through an angel investor, and that story is just crazy amazing. Let me let me stop you there. Yes, Yes.
0: that angel investor for our listeners was a chicken farmer. That's correct. (laughs)
1: For more episodes of Everyone Talks to Liz Clayman and other podcasts, go to FoxNewsPodcast.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America.
3: Download from the kitchen table, The Duffys, Duffy's. at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.